there's the old joke where like first time founders worry about product, second time founders worry about go to market. This is SaaS Scaled, the podcast where data meets action with host Armand Shraki. Each week, Armand will be sitting down with CEOs and industry leaders from the technology sector, giving you the insight to innovate without reinventing the wheel. They'll discuss challenges, best practices, and how to identify the right metrics. So if you want to get to market faster and in a way that matters, then subscribe and join us every week as we discuss SaaS scale. This episode is brought to you by Curve, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at curve.com. That's q r v e y.com. Hello, welcome to another episode of SaaS Scaled. I'm here with Boris Brandberg, and he's the VP of product at a company that I know from the past, but this company is in this area, and I think Boris is in New York area. Modest Create is the name of the company. And Boris, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thanks, Arman. I'm Boris. I'm the VP of Product Development at Modus today. I've been working in tech for going on 17 years now. Prior to my current role, I had founded Atlas Authority, which was an Atlassian partner company, which means that we resold Atlassian products. We did services around it, like implementation, migrations, training, etc. And we also created and sold apps on the Atlassian marketplace. And we did similar things in adjacent ecosystems like Monday.com. Now that I'm at Modus, I'm responsible for growing the pure product portion of the portfolio. Like I said, that involves the marketplace apps and other parallel initiatives that we're currently working on. Fantastic. Yeah, tell us a little bit about Modus as well and what you do inside Modus that I understand it's a kind of maybe a division that adds the product aspect to what Modus does. Yeah, so Modus is largely a consulting firm and we have a variety of types of consulting that we do. So we will do services consulting around product development, so, for example, I think one of the really big case studies that we, we had recently was Modus worked with Audi to build a tool that allows customers to kind of artificially generate the car in the specific configuration that they want and then see what it looks like in various environments, et cetera. And then now this has been deployed to, to showrooms and, and dealers so that they can, you know, actively work with with customers to, to get a feel for exactly the car they want. There's a bunch of other case studies on the website. Uh, I'm still pretty new to the company, so I can't speak for it super well. We do a lot of uh, product development. We do security consulting. We do digital transformation. There's a lot of stuff around product strategy. And I'm sure that there's other parts I'm, I'm forgetting right now, but you know, check out moduscreate.com for the full listing of, of what the organization does. I myself, like I said, I'm responsible for the software that was acquired 
as part of my old company joining Modus. What that means for us strategically is that, so like I said, we do services for various companies. And one of the services that we provide is Atlassian-related consulting, right? Which is why we were a strategic acquisition for, for Modus. When a customer is working with a consulting uh, vendor like ours, we get a very unique set of insights into what are the product gaps that exist um, in the Atlassian ecosystem or in any ecosystem in which we work. And so the, the thesis is that if we're working tightly with customers and we're understanding where these gaps are, we are then able to transform that into products that we can sell to customers to help meet those needs. And it becomes a kind of like almost like a flywheel motion of us working with customers, them telling us what we need to build, us building more stuff, us building more customer relationships, and it just self-reinforces and, and continues to support itself. So that's kind of what we're doing. And then the the plan that I can publicly discuss is that, uh, you know, we're going to be building other things as well, but that's to be announced. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. It's one of those cases that two plus two can be more than four, right? So as you said, both arms can add value to each other and create some added value that accelerates each part. So from your perspective, focusing on the product side and doing the product, and I know that from your perspective also, you are interested into making the product more into a position that it is more product-led growth rather than bringing sales team or you know building that kind of thing. So from the get-go, you had that vision that if you wanted to get into product, you rather to build a product that has that opportunity to really be part of maybe app market, more part of a marketplace, part of another ecosystem, and then you can easier market it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm pretty sure many of the founders, many of the SaaS companies, the startups are thinking along the same line. And then what was your journey? How did you, you know, experience that kind of, you know, part? That's a great question. It's not like some genius moment for me. It, it was a lot of just randomness that came together correctly. So prior to running Atlas Authority, I was actually employed by Atlassian and I was a member of the Jira support team. And at the time, this was like 2012. So pardon me if, I'm, if I get the details wrong. But at the time, Atlassian had dropped support for Markdown in Confluence. And there was a significant and vocal minority of customers who were very, very upset about this. Atlassian was not going to change their direction. They, they knew where they were going. And they had what they at the time called, I think it was called a ship it or something like that, but it was an internal hackathon. And so as a internal hackathon project, I wrote a very simple app that we could put on the marketplace called uh, Markdown Macro for Confluence. I'm not a particularly good developer, right? Like if I had to rate my technical skills, I would say it's somewhere about the level of someone who's completed six to 12 months of, you know, coding classes at university. So very, very entry level. But, you know, a, a markdown macro is pretty simply like some scaffolding. And then it's like, read text in, pass it to a library, 
spit the results back out. Like this is not a particularly complex bit of code. Published it. And then as I was employed at Atlassian, I would periodically update the underlying library, you know, as security vulnerabilities, et cetera, came about, et cetera. And then I quit. And I want to say about a year or two later, I looked on the marketplace and I saw, and, and actually before this, I had just built a couple of minor other apps that like like weekend projects and launched them. And, you know, they were making small amounts of money. I, I want to say like probably less than a thousand a month, you know, it was like small, but you know, whatever, beer money. And at some point I looked at this app and I was like, hey, there's like 2,000 systems on which it's installed, which is millions of licensed end users. And I was like, Atlassian, you guys haven't updated this thing in a while. And it's definitely got security vulnerabilities and it's running on a lot of systems. Would you mind if, you know, I just don't want that associated with my name. So I was like, can you give me a license to manage this thing? And just update it and continue to provide it for free to customers. So we did that. Now, I guess 10 years later, the app has something like six and a half thousand installed instances with God knows how many actual end users. I need to figure that out. I think for some of our compliance paperwork I'm working on. But the practical side here is that we were able to have this really, really large growth in this one app based on what I figured out later was a freemium model, right? We were giving the on-prem version away for free. Mm -hmm. And then about a year and a half ago, we started an initiative to launch a SaaS version of it. And so now, you know, to this day, the on-prem version is free for everybody. It's completely open source. You can find it on GitHub. If you want to add a feature, please file a PR. We do accept them. And then we have the cloud version, which has way more features. It is paid and we have automated migrations from one to the other. It's a very like backhanded way to really learn the power of freemium because, you know, we're seeing this app grow both in installation and revenue and everything much, much faster than any of our other apps. To your initial point about like, hey, like PLG, product-led growth versus sales-led growth, we were not particularly good at sales as, an, as a company. And when I say we, I mean me, because I was doing most of the sales. We ran super lean. We were mostly a technical team. And so for us, we were looking at it as a question of, hey, how do we solve go-to-market without having to do a very heavy marketing and sales motion? We knew that we could provide excellent technical support because we basically have, you know, myself and devs doing technical support. So, you, you know, you're not talking to someone who doesn't know what they're doing. And so we knew that was good. So then the question becomes, well, if you build something great and you just post it like a SaaS website and then you post it on like Hacker News or Product Hunt or, you know, Indie Hackers or whatever, right? Like this is the, something I see all the time where like people post something and they're like, oh my God, I hit like 2K MRR. And I'm like, I was making six figures selling iframes for Confluence. And that's not something nicely iframed into Confluence. That's literally me bundling an iframe for Confluence. There's a huge difference in the value that you provide, not on the technical foundation of the product you build, but on the go-to-market motion that you can offer, right? And because we don't have a marketing or a sales cost, we can offer the product itself at a very low cost, right? Because all we're looking at is, hey, what's our ongoing dev efforts to maintain at a you know flat feature set? What is our support of overhead to support the app? 
we can look at a customer and say, okay, well, average customer is going to cost us X per year. So if we want Y margin, like it's pretty basic math. The other thing is when you want to compete for something, you want to make competing as easy as possible for yourself, right? And this is the the classic thing of like somebody being like, oh, yes, we're the best Ukrainian restaurant in Bushwick. And for people who don't know, Bushwick is a neighborhood in New York. So if you say you're the best Ukrainian restaurant in Bushwick, then it's like, of course, you're the only Ukrainian restaurant in Bushwick, right? Whereas, you know, and that's something that small organizations will do, right? And large organizations will do the opposite, right? Like Google will never say like, rather than saying they're in the digital advertising business where they control a majority of it, right? They'll say, oh, no, no, we're in the advertising business and compare themselves to people that aren't really competition in order to make themselves seem smaller. So much in the same way, when we look at a marketplace, we say, hey, we don't have to compete for iframes for Confluence on Google. We just need to compete where the customers are searching and the customers are searching in this marketplace. So now we don't have to win SEO on Google. We don't have to win copywriting, you know, against everybody on the internet. We just need to compete in this one very small niche on this marketplace. To some degree, it's almost like SEO hacking, right? To some degree, it's almost like, it's just, it feels a little bit easier. It's like the early days of the internet kind of, because marketplaces aren't going to be as sophisticated as Google as a whole. I wouldn't say that it's particularly product-led growth. I would say more it's reduced cost of experimentation and a reduced ongoing operational cost if there's success, right? And so you're able to build, like you're not going to build a multi-billion dollar business on market. I mean, you could, there are a few that have been done, right? Like you have Viva systems on top of App Exchange. You have a few like that, but most likely you're not going to build a multi-billion dollar business on top of this. So it's more of a question of like, what are you aiming for, right? If you want to build a business that's like doing two, $3 million a year in revenues, like go for it. Marketplaces are way easier than building a generic SaaS, right? If you want to build a multi-billion dollar business, then probably not going to be the right match for you. Obviously, there's exceptions and special cases. In the Atlassian world, we have a company called AppFire who has done basically a, a, a roll-up. So they've gone and bought a lot of the other marketplace vendors and they're consolidating them under one umbrella. I have no idea what their financials look like, but my guess is that as they continue to consolidate vendors and as those vendors grow over time, that at some point their revenues will classify them as a multi-billion dollar company. So, you know, props to them. As you said, there's the optimized point. You can really reach to that point and then say, this is the optimized point. Because if you continue, you may not get the same efficiency as you add more people and as you want to grow beyond a certain point. So there is that optimization point when you are part of that kind of marketplace and you may add another product, you may go to kind of add another add-on, you, you can branch out to a scale to add to that number. But in that particular area, if you do not expand in other ways, then you need to know that optimization point. Otherwise, you may kind of reach to a point that actually you are now not as efficient as you were before. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that one thing that's interesting that we're starting to see now 
is that there are vendors who build an app on the marketplace and then they expand it to generalize it. Well, I guess I can kind of tell a backward story. So there's a company called 55 Degrees. I believe they're out of Sweden. So Daniel Wester and his wife run it. I don't know what happened on the back end, but somehow they they have a deal with a company called Actionable Agile, which is like a tool for predicting kind of agile delivery dates and, you know, agile stuff into the future. It's something along the lines of they either acquired it or they licensed it or something like that. And now they built that into a Jira extension, right? And so you have all of this reporting in Jira, but you can also buy the standalone product as a SaaS. I think another example of this is Draw.io. So Draw.io is like an online diagramming software, kind of like Visio, but totally free. I think they rebranded to diagrams.net or something like that. Really good team. I've known them for years. So like they have this online SaaS version, which is completely free, or you can buy like the Jira or Confluence versions where, again, it's like, I, I, if I remember correctly, they're literally, I think, like 10% of the cost, or at least they used to be 10% of the cost of the competition. I don't remember how pricing is adjusted. They basically took the SaaS product, figured out a way to like package it into this marketplace version. And as a result, they're able to generate a ton of uh, revenue off this marketplace. Now, if they wanted to bundle it and do the same thing in another marketplace, like only thing stopping them is you know business strategy. So I think that the value of marketplaces as a go-to-market motion and as especially for what I would say like internet lifestyle businesses, right? Of like where you're making millions or tens of millions of dollars annually, super viable. You just need to find the right marketplaces to operate in. And then when you are, for example, in this particular case, you, you started to get some customers, did you have a different experience with some segment of customers or even a single customer than the others? Did you feel like I can really now focus on this particular segment and see the future of, you know, company or the future customers come from this particular segment? So you essentially refocus, maybe, maybe fine tune the focus in either way, and then define that kind of direction and then go faster as a result. Have you had such an experience or from your perspective, all of these customers signed up, all, you know, kind of, you know, work the same way and you still continue to support everybody the same way and cover the, you know, the, the same profile? I think that's a great question. You know, I would say that my experience around this was more in the, the services part of our organization. So we were initially very, very specific when, when Atlas Authority launched. And the thesis was we will only serve very, very, very large customers that are probably in the top thousand in terms of like the amount of stuff that they had in their Jira system, right? And we were looking specifically at like, hey, who are the people where they're having performance problems, who are the people that are having major outages and who are the people that basically like budget doesn't matter, right? Like I can charge an arm and a leg and it's still a blip on their radar compared to what the impact of an outage or 
a performance degradation or something else would be. And that worked for a bit, but really Atlassian then improved the product that it wasn't necessary to do what I was doing. And we had to actually go the opposite direction where we had to like scale out and, and niche out and say, hey, we're going to serve more people, more needs, more everything. And that led to all kinds of chat. Like it, things were almost easier in the early stage because it was like you worked with fewer customers. There are these mega corporations, you know, money doesn't matter. You know, once you get through procurement, it's all fine. We ended up working with a lot of smaller customers, which we found to be very painful. You know, the smaller the customer, the more every dollar matters to them and the more they're going to be, you know, nitpicking everything rather than collaboratively working towards the actual outcome that, that we want to achieve. That was definitely a challenge. On the product side, I think that what we've done, and, and I kind of referenced this earlier, was that the marketplace offered us a pretty cost-effective way of testing ideas. So we had this idea. So Atlassian, I guess, still makes a product called Bitbucket Server, which is a Git server that you can host, you know, on-prem or in AWS or whatever. We're like, okay, well, guess what? Like people make mistakes and people are going to commit secrets uh, like passwords, API keys, et cetera, into code. And like, this is a big no-no and you have to be able to clean it up. And we're like, okay, so let's build a plugin for Bitbucket Server that would scan repositories, automatically clean them up, send warnings to admins that this had happened, right? It's all the stuff that like everybody needs for compliance reasons. And it had actually been requested by a very large bank. The moment we completed the app, the bank went silent and did not want to buy it anymore. We put it on the marketplace and guess what? Nobody actually wanted it, right? But the nice thing was that the cost to get to like a, an okay MVP was $10,000 start to finish. At the time, I definitely wasn't happy that we'd blown $10,000 and gotten nothing out of it. But at the same time, if you look at like what people do with like AdWords, you know, like people blow $10,000 on nothing all the time. Like, like that's, that's your budget for running an AdWords experiment half the time. So I, I found it to be a much more, you know, like I said, cost effective way of doing experimentation around customer needs and whatnot. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Now that's a good point that even for experimenting, for doing some kind of work because you're right. I mean, it can be pretty expensive if you, you know, spend all of that money and R&D and everything and marketing. And, and then you learn that this is not really going to financially be viable solution after you have, you know, invested a lot of money. This way you can really go there. And just... There's the old joke where like first time founders worry about product. Second time founders worry about go to market. And... I'm very much in, in that second camp now, right? Like I remember even before Atlas Authority, I started like a small company. Do you remember what the Pebble smartwatch was? Yeah. So the interesting thing for people who listen to this, who don't know what a Pebble is, it was a smartwatch with an e-ink screen. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part was that it had buttons on the sides and it had an up button and a down button. And so I wrote an app where whenever you pressed up, it would just record that you had pressed up the time and the GPS location. And if you press down, it recorded down and the time and the GPS location. Well, and then what I called it was mood app. So if you felt good, you pressed up. If you felt bad, you pressed down. Now, the cool thing with the buttons is that like you can do this under the table. 
So if you're like in trouble at a meeting and you're feeling really tense, you can press down. If you feel really, really tense, you can press down multiple times, right? It's whatever it means to you. And then I had a like a UI which would display like a heat map of like where you're happy, where you're unhappy. I had a, you know, it could show you by time of day what your you know mood was, by day of the month, et cetera. And I built all this crazy stuff. And then I was like, wait, there's no way to sell these apps. Like there was an app store, but you can't sell them. You can only give it away. And I was like, okay, how do I do anything with this? So I started talking to people and they're like, maybe you can sell it to hospitals that are doing research on mood disorders. And I was like, oh my God, I screwed up here. Like I built a really cool toy and it helped me figure out what was going on in my life at the time, but it was completely useless from a go-to-market perspective. Understanding kind of how that go-to-market emotional work along with any experiments that are being run is just a very key component to, to kind of doing this stuff. That's the interesting point. And by the way, fascinating idea, but on the product side, the point that you raised, you know, I have seen people, and I would say you're right, at the very beginning, majority of people get into the product building thing that way, that I'm going to build this product. And they focus a lot on explaining what the product does and you know, all the fascination around the product. And then there are some other people that maybe they have experienced that phase and they think about go-to-market strategy. And even before they start building the product, they think, how can I sell it? How can I market it? You know, what was the, what is the market? Who's the ideal, you know, customer profile for this? Who's the buyer? Can I replicate it? The cost of sales? All of those things that come to mind when, you know, you are thinking about that kind of, go-to-market strategy. I noodle around with ideas on the side all the time. And I can't think of like the last time that anything reached the code phase, you know, for like side projects, it every single thing dies now in the initial like sales, marketing, market sizing, ICP phase, et cetera. It's like, oh, nope, like it's a good idea in theory, but not, doesn't actually work as a business. Yeah, and also there's a third phase. I mean, in the second phase, of course, you think about who's the buyer or whom I'm building this for, and then it leads you to the product. But there's the third phase I have seen. Some people have it, and they're very smart about thinking, not just selling the product, but the exit plan. And they think, okay, what is the exit plan for what I'm going to start? So I'm going to build this product or service and then I'm going to, you know, build a go-to-market strategy. And I have thought through that. But then if I do all of these, then what is the exit? How does it look like? Yeah, so I think the book that I'm looking for is called Built to Sell by John Warlow, published 2010. It's very much, you know, talking about exactly this idea. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, and I have seen these people, and they're some of the smartest I've ever met. And they have been in business for many years. They have done many different things, and that's their brain, the way it works. So they they go through all these areas. You know, they think about the product, they think about the uh, market and the customer, but also they don't stop there. They even think about what is the journey of this business, you know, through the end, and what is the end. And then they wanted to really look at all of these and then say, this is the way we are going to do it. And that's really, really a smart way to do it. 
look, I, like I said, wh- whenever I do these validations, a lot of things die, die in this early phase. Now, my thing is when I think about an idea for like months and months and months, you know, something that like really gets stuck in your head. I take a bunch of notes. I like read books, et cetera on it. And then I will give up on the idea. And oftentimes I won't even give up because it's like not viable. I just think I'm the wrong person to build it. Right. Like I had this idea of how to replace Google search. Right. It's like you need somebody more technical than me to run that. And so I wrote it up as a blog post. Right. And so I write these blog posts that I call like requests for startups, kind of like the, you know, Y Combinator posts and stuff. And, you know, I think it's a good way of, of thinking through ideas and, and trying to create some of that intellectual rigor of thinking it through, writing it down, trying to like edit your thoughts. I don't think anybody reads it. I don't think anybody cares, but it's, it's more of an exercise for myself of just, you know, working through that process and trying to, you know, flex the muscle as best as I can. I mean, the great thing about content, to be honest with you, and this podcast is one of those examples. When you create the content, the content lasts. You know, it's not like at that moment you place that advertisement and the advertisement go away. That's the difference. So if you go to an AdWord, if you go to any advertisement platform, if you take a billboard and you just say, I will put this name on this billboard on Times Square. Okay, great. You have it for that period of time and then it goes away. The great thing about the content is it stays and then you can even refresh it. You can even go there and bring it back. What we discussed today, if I write a blog six months from now, if you write a blog nine months from now, you still can refer to this content and say, by the way, you know, less than two minute 23. And that's exactly this topic that we are talking here. And this is some opinions that, you know, may matter. So, so that's really the beauty of creating this content. And I'm a strong believer that, you know, if you look at the SaaS market in particular, you know, how many people are really building these SaaS products in the world, right? So it's not like, you know, there, there are billions of them. So there's a small percentage of the population and we are in the SaaS business, building SaaS, empowering SaaS products helping others to build the SaaS product. And that ecosystem, the more we collaborate, the more, I would say, quality content we create and share with each other, it just helps everyone. And that's really the beauty of, again, just writing this content. So I don't think, you know, we should think about this content we are creating now, how many people will hear that, will see it, will read it in the next, you know, week? Maybe just a few hundreds, maybe a few thousands, but doesn't matter. I mean, that stays there and then you can reuse it. You can even go back to it and, you know, link it. Sometimes you can, like a software, you can evolve it. You can have a different version. So definitely creating content is great. I'm glad that you are doing this and writing this rather than not capturing it. So that's I would actually even go a step further, right? There's a podcast I listen to called uh, Acquired. And... There's a common thing that, that Ben and David say, Ben and David are the hosts, where they're, you know, it's it's a business history, finance, whatever podcast. And they will oftentimes, you know, they do a lot of in-depth research. And one of the best sources of like first party information that they find that no one else is referencing is oftentimes on YouTube. 
where they will just type in, you know, the name of some executive or whatever, and they will find an interview like this. So like one of the, the example that comes to mind right now is, I think his name is Barry McCarthy, former CFO of Netflix and current CEO of Peloton. So they found a video where he gave an interview with the current principal or something like that of his original high school, if I understood correctly, something along those lines. And it has like 300 views, right? Which means like even stock analysts aren't watching this. And this guy's the CEO of like a publicly traded company, right? And he's talking about like very practical and helpful things. I mean, sure, there's some like generic backstory, you know, you can hear about, but but there's also, you know, very practical and sane stuff. And, you know, I think that the the volume of really smart people sharing really smart content is woefully undiscoverable, right? Like, like there's so much of this stuff that like, I almost wish that, you know, there was like a podcast feed where somebody just curated like these like rare interviews that nobody ever watches. Uh, and you could just like get one a day, you know, when I go running, I just want to like, listen to that startup idea for somebody who wants to build it. <laughs> you know, the, the great thing about these ideas, honestly, it's when you share it, it adds up. It, it's, it's not like a, you know, physical thing, like a piece of land that when you share it, then you have less of it. Honestly, when, you know, you brainstorm, when you bring these ideas to others, when you share it, actually you get more and you get better ideas. So that's the beauty of, you know, thinking about this, this way and, you know, sharing those ideas and thoughts. It has been a great discussion with you, Boris. I enjoyed it. I hope the audience enjoyed it as well. Before we say goodbye, I would like to ask you if there is any book or blog post or podcast or something that you really enjoyed, it has been impactful and you would like to share it with others. Yeah, I mean, I don't have like a singular thing. I would say for podcasts, definitely Acquired is probably my current favorite. I treat it kind of like dessert. Like I only let myself listen to it at certain times because they don't put out a lot of episodes. So I'm just like, okay, you got to save the Like I'll listen to it when I run, but the moment I get home and I need to like shower and all that, I immediately pause it. And I'll switch to something else that's like less good. And then I'll come back to it next time I'm running because it helps me helps me run well. In terms of blog posts, I don't have a specific blog post I'd point to. I think there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Uh, if you want to see what I write, it's on a website called nothingeasyaboutthis.com, just like my personal website. If you go to nothingeasyaboutthis.com slash books, that's a list of all the books I'm reading. I don't particularly call out if something is good or bad, but I can't think of anything on that list that I would say like, don't, don't spend your time reading. I think it's all pretty good. It is mostly business stuff, especially over the last few years. There is definitely a lot of sci-fi and stuff like that mixed in. The Diamond Age by Neil Stevenson. Okay. I love that book. I love that book. And uh, there's this idea in the book called, uh, I think it's called The Young Lady's Primer. And the idea is that it's a book designed to teach a child to be rebellious, like teach them everything intellectually and like personality wise, teach them to be rebellious and free thinking. I, I find it to be an interesting idea. It's also interesting because once you've read the book, 
then you start seeing a lot of like ed tech startups basically trying to build the young ladies, you know, primer. And uh, it's kind of like whenever, whenever you reach out to the founders, you're like, Hey, did you guys read the diamond age? They're like, yeah. I'm like, okay, cool. We're on the same page here. Um, no, Neil Stevenson's amazing. So Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thanks a lot, Armand. Have a great day. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to SaaS Scaled with Armand Ishragi. For show notes and any resources mentioned in today's episode, go to sasscaled.com. If you're enjoying our show, give us a five-star review and share on LinkedIn. And be sure to subscribe for any updates on future episodes. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Curve A, the modern no-code analytics solution for SaaS companies on AWS. The tools you need to take action with your data on a platform built for maximum scalability, security, and cost efficiencies. If you're ready to reduce complexity and dramatically lower costs, then contact us today at Curve.com. That's Q-R-V-E-Y dot com.